0: But yeah, come on in. There's some notes on the back, so if you have the binder or you have the PDF, there's nothing new. It's just, it's going to be the same notes we're following along. So I printed out um, the same thing from last week, which we didn't get to, and hopefully the first part of Isaiah. Now if you're following along with the outline, you're like, oh man, we're supposed to get to Isaiah 39 today. No, that would be great, but I don't think we're going to get there. So I'll be happy if we get to Isaiah 11 this morning, and then we can catch up. Um, we, we've got time. We'll, it'll, everything will be okay. It's going to be fine. It'll be great. Um, so we're going to do a little bit of that uh, page two that you should have and then hopefully get into Isaiah. But before we do that, there's some important stuff we got to talk about um, that I'm excited to talk about. So maybe we'll get to Isaiah today. No, we will. Um, we'll talk about Isaiah. Let me begin with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for who you are that you have given us the blessing, the opportunity to come together um, as your people this morning, and that we can learn from your word. Lord, I pray that as we study it, as we meditate upon its truths, that it would shape our heart, that it would not just be knowledge in our brain, um, but that it would be life-transforming doctrine that goes down into our hearts, that as we see who you are and how you have revealed yourself throughout scripture progressively, that we would be changed into your likeness, that as we behold the glory of God, we would be changed from one degree of glory to the next, as you say in 2 Corinthians. So I pray that you would bless this time. Um, pray that it would be fruitful for um, our edification and your glory. We ask this in your name. Amen. <clears throat> All right. So, yeah, I have some slides prepared before we get going. There's some important stuff I didn't get to talk about last week that hopefully we can. Let's see if they'll work and already we're not working. Oh, hey, okay. Oh, I should have prayed for the slides. Um, So we've got a little bit of a timeline. I meant to have a little light thing here, Um, but I don't know if you guys can see that. Hopefully you can a little bit. So where we find ourselves, really what we're starting with is looking at the prophets. So we're going to actually circle back um, and uh, look at Ezra, Nehemiah, well Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. So if you guys look at your English Bible, those are actually before us, right? We have, you know, the historical books, and then Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and then the poetry, and then the prophets, okay? So what we're actually doing in this class, what I'm trying to do to the best of my abilities is follow um, chronologically through the Old Testament, right? Um, and if you guys have Dempster's book, Dominion and Dynasty, that's what he does, generally speaking. So um, he follows the Tanakh, which is just the, the Jewish Old Testament. He argues, I think persuasively, that that's what the... Um, Apostles would have had. When Jesus is talking about the Old Testament, that's the order he would have had, it's just what we call the Tanakh, okay? Um, and so that's what I'm generally following, but I actually disagree. I, I don't disagree with it, but I'm going out of order a little bit because Isaiah is actually before Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They have Jeremiah, Ezekiel, then Isaiah. Isaiah is actually first. Um, and so that's why we're spending time in Isaiah. But what you see here, you don't have this on your notes, and it's like, where do I write this down? It's like, I don't know, somewhere in the side. Um, You've got paper just in the, in the notes reference there. We're right there in the middle. If you can see where it says the prophesied kingdom, kind of that 1 Kings 11, 2 Kings 25. Isaiah to Malachi really are the prophets commenting on that period, okay? So it's almost like we're moving through. So you guys did this in Old Testament 1. Here's what's happening with these kings, you know, and they're all terrible pretty much, right? They're all sinning. Now we're commenting on that period, that time period, and that's what the prophets are doing, okay? So just some dates. If you guys want this to write it down, 930 B.C. is when the kingdom split, okay? 930 B.C. That's when you have Israel divided into a northern kingdom, which um, is, is called, we just call it Israel, and then the southern kingdom, Judah, okay? So Israel and Judah, around 930 B.C., and that's when, if you see that first line there, I wish I had a little pointer, but um, then you see Israel's history declines. That's where we're at. We're in the declining history period, okay? 930 B.C., In 722 B.C., Assyria takes the northern kingdom into captivity, 722, okay? Isaiah is writing during that period, okay, as we're going to talk about. 722, Assyria takes the northern kingdom. 586, Babylon takes the southern kingdom, okay? So 722, these are actually pretty important when we spend time in the prophets. So 722, Assyria, 586, Babylon. Takes the southern kingdom. We good on that? Okay. And then around 538 um, to 430 BC is when they, they start coming back. And that's where we're going to get into Ezra and Nehemiah. So that's just a timeline. I thought that might be fun for you guys to look at. I thought it was pretty good. Um, so that's where we're at, right there in the middle Isaiah, Malachi, and then we're going to, the narrative picks back up um, really in Daniel, and we're going to come back to Chronicles. All right. Is it working here? Okay, yes. Um, before I get to this, on your notes, page two, okay, you have progressive unfolding of the covenants. You guys see that? Progressive unfolding of the covenants, page two. This, I think, is the most helpful way to understand the structure of the Old Testament, okay? Like, what's going on in the story? I think the most um, organic, right, that's a buzzword. Everyone's like, oh, man, organic. I want to eat organic stuff. Okay, I think the most organic way, like the most natural way to read the Old Testament would be through the covenants, okay? We're going to talk a little bit about this, okay? Um, you see there the Noahic covenant, okay? Genesis 6 to 9. Um, actually, before I say that, you should have down at the bottom, you have a quote from Dempster, right? He says, covenants, they do three things. Uh, establishes a relationship, number one. It entails obligations, number three. Charts a future for both parties. Now, I like about what he's saying there in his definition is that it entails obligations, not necessarily for both parties. So, like, in the Noahic covenant, one aspect of it is God just says, I'm never going to judge the world again with water. There's nothing that Noah or his descendants can do to thwart that aspect of the covenant. He's just saying, hey, I'm making a covenant with myself that I'm never going to do this. Okay? But then you come to, like, the Abrahamic covenant, and you see that um, aspects of that are unilateral. God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you seed. I'm going to make you a great nation. But there's also aspects of blessing and disobedience, right? I will bless you if you obey. I will curse you if you disobey. And you really see that coming into the Mosaic covenant. You see that brought out in Exodus. You see it given again in Deuteronomy, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. And then the Davidic covenant, okay? Um, I would kind of say like the Davidic covenant. If you're Lord of the Rings fans, the Davidic covenant is like the one covenant to rule them all. It's like that. That's like that's like major covenant, okay? And the the new covenant goes hand in hand with it, okay? So the Davidic covenant. I don't know if this is the best way to say it, but the Davidic covenant is kind of the who and the what, primarily saying okay, the the king, this promised kingdom um, that we talked about last week in 2 Samuel 7, land, rest, name, seed, blessing, prosperity. It's going to come through a descendant of David. So that's maybe the who and the what, if you want to make it real, real simple. And then the new covenant, which is especially what we're going to deal with in the prophets, is kind of the how. Okay? How is that going to happen? How is that work going to be brought about? Okay? So the who and the what, Davidic covenant. It's going to be from the line of David, and he's going to have, what is he going to have? Land, seed, blessing of people. How is that going to take place? By means of the new covenant. Does that kind of make sense? The distinction between those two? Okay. So that's just kind of the organic way for how we understand. I don't know why it's already doing this. Hold on, let me. Ah, Okay, hold on, hold on. I'm not like totally tech, like not savvy, but for some reason this thing, that's what I'm doing here. It just doesn't like me for some reason. It's like, what did I ever do? It's like, oh, 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 there's Omaha Beach. Omaha Beach has nothing to do with what we're talking about. All right, I'm going to keep clicking before something happens. Okay, Um, progressive revelation. Um, This is, I think, um, so we're we're talking about, um, you know, the covenants as structure. Okay, Um, this, I think, is the the default way we think about how the Old Testament works, okay? And what I mean by that is, let's just say Moses is all the way on the far left, okay? He has a small picture of what's going on, okay? Okay, I know there's going to be land, there's going to be a blessing, okay, God's going to do this work, okay? As the story progresses on, okay, maybe David is there in the middle. Oh, okay, he understands more, okay? Um, And, you know, finally, maybe when we come to the end of the prophets, okay, we have a bigger picture, okay? I think that's the default way we think about progressive revelation. The beginning Old Testament guys didn't know very much, and by the time we come to the end, they, they understand more, okay? And by the way, I'm just stealing this from um, one of my professors. I think a better way, let's see if it does a little dance, yeah. I think a better way, which is more helpful, is something like this, okay? And you're like, wow, that looks amazing or horrible. It's like, well, I made it myself, um, yes. <laughs> took, took me about an hour. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but what's, what's going on there, the, the difference between the two? What I'm trying to say here, and I think this is a better way to understand progressive revelation, is that let's just say the earliest Old Testament writers. Let's say they're the big lines, okay? I think they a- actually understood big picture where God was going, okay? They understood what was going to happen. Now, they may not have understood all the details, how that was going to happen, okay? And so what you have going on here is, okay, you know, maybe by the time David comes around, he's contributing more. I wish I had a little clicker thing. Um, you know, maybe Obadiah, he's just that, you know, one chapter, he's just that little, little squiggle right there, right? You know, but there's, there's more details being unraveled. Does that make sense, kind of the difference between the two? I thought this was really helpful for me in thinking through, it's not that Moses was an idiot, okay? He's not dumb. He actually knew big picture. That, the reason why I say this is because a lot of times, which you'll read in some books, is that the Old Testament writers, they just didn't know what they were talking about. And we're actually going to get to a verse that talks about that. Um, I don't think that's true. I think they actually knew what they were talking about. The specifics maybe weren't fleshed out until later. Okay. So I would argue for number two. Again, this is all just kind of preliminary stuff. Okay. Real quick, real quick. I had to talk about this. Um, Mark talked about this in Glory to Glory. You'll, you'll hear these big terms, dispensationalism and covenantalism. And you're like, what in the world? Okay. They're just fancy words, basically, for the relationship between the church and Israel. Okay. There, there's more, but that's basically what's going on. Okay. As a church, we identify and we would say we are dispensational. Okay. So we're on the left side of that spectrum. Okay. What I want to do in this class, particularly with the prophets, is show why that's not crazy. I think a lot of the times, I mean, and this is just true, a lot of the guys that we really like, you know, I love R.C. Sproul, he'd be on the other side. He'd be, you know, a more covenant theology guy. And a lot of the guys that we're going to read and a lot of pastors that we're going to respect are going to differ with us and say more so that Israel, excuse me, the church, they wouldn't say has replaced Israel, but it is true spiritual Israel. Um, that the church inherits the promises that were made and given to Israel, that the promises that God made to Israel were forfeited because of their unbelief or sin or something like that, okay? Um, I want to show from the prophets why we don't believe that, okay? So I'm just giving you, my, like, my thesis statement. That's one of the things I'm going to try and do. Um, and so we could talk about that a lot, but I'm not going to because we don't need to. Okay, last thing here. Three things... About the prophets. And I use things and stuff because people say, don't use that. Well, I'm going to use it. Okay. Three things. I didn't know what else. These are important. Write these down somewhere. Three things. Okay. Number one, what are the prophets even doing? What are the prophets even doing? This is important. When we hear the word prophets, I think our default is to think it shall come to pass in the latter days that X, Y, and Z is going to happen. That's what the prophets do. They, they prophesy about the future. That is partially true. Okay? A major, major aspect of what the prophets are doing, and you want to write this down, is they are condemning the people for their failure to obey the covenant. Okay? Over and over and over, it goes back to the covenant. Okay? We're going to see that right off the bat in Isaiah 1. Okay? It's not just a prophecy About the future. Yes, that happens, but that's not everything going on. They go back to the covenant, they go back, particularly the Mosaic covenant. They go back to the law and saying, You guys have failed, you have sinned, you have fallen in this area. And because of that, God is going to bring judgment. That's why we talked about blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. The prophets are going, you guys have disobeyed, and therefore what's going to happen? Curse, right? Okay. So that's important as we talk about the prophets. They're not just prophesying. That's true. They're going back to prior revelation. Okay, number two, the prophets knew stuff. Okay. And you can turn there if you want. At at least write it down. Second, 1 Peter, excuse me. 1 Peter 1. This is a verse people will go to to reference how the prophets didn't know what they are talking about. 1 Peter 1, 10 to 11. I'll just read it. Concerning this salvation, he's talking about Christ. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And so what people do is say, look, they, they were trying to figure it out. They didn't know what was going to happen. They're trying to, okay, we don't know everything and, and we're just trying to figure it out. Okay? The verse actually doesn't say that. They knew what was coming. They didn't know when. They knew what was coming. They didn't know when. Now, again, they might not have understood all of the what, but they get actually pretty specific here in 1 Peter 1. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted. See, there's the when. And then what are they talking about? The sufferings of the Messiah and the subsequent glories. So they're they're specific on the two things of the what. They didn't know when the sufferings of Messiah would come. They didn't know when he would be glorified. But they knew what they were talking about. Does that make sense, that point there? I think that, that's a helpful clarification. Say, Okay, so the prophets knew stuff. Number three, the sky monster principle, okay? And that's, that's my sky monster. And you're like, what in the world is this class? Okay, the sky monster principle. That's a unicorn with uh, leaves as wings because that's all I could find. Um, that's a sky monster. You'll remember this, okay? Timmy, do you remember this? Okay, Timmy doesn't. Um, so from, I'm, I'm stealing this from uh, Dr. Chow, who is my Old Testament prof. This was really helpful. He talks about the sky monster principle. And what he's talking about here is when it comes to, to uh, prophecy, let's just say he gave this example. You've got the sky monster, and he's, he's going to go after this pirate ship. And the prophet says, behold, the sky monster is going to come. The sky monster is going to come. He's going to unleash vengeance on the ship. He's going to kill everyone on the ship, and the ship is going to be completely and utterly destroyed. Okay, that's the prophecy. Okay, so sky monster comes. He, you know, pierces a pirate with his unicorn horn, right? He kills one, and he tears down one of the masts or something like that. But then he flies away. Is the prophecy done? No. Because the prophet said he's going to kill everyone and the ship is going to be completely and utterly destroyed. Not a soul will be left. It will be complete and utter destruction. Okay? So Sky Monster flies away. Sky Monster comes back, takes down another mast, kills another dozen people, but then flies away. Is the prophecy done? Is the prophecy done? No. Okay. Sky Monster finally comes back third time just destroys the ship. It is completely destroyed. Every soul goes down to Davy Jones' locker. They're all done, okay? Is the prophecy fulfilled? Yes, okay? Now, I think what that, it's silly, but it's actually helpful, is that when you see a prophecy in the Old Testament and it's, behold, it shall come to pass in the last days, that X, Y, and Z, and he gets specific on what's going to happen. And then you read like maybe 10 chapters later, oh, that kind of sounds like that, but there's some differences, Oh, that mate, oh, no, 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 not yet. Oh, it sounds similar, no. What that principle helps with is, you could just say this, it ain't over till it's over. The prophecy ain't over till it's over. It will be fulfilled, okay? You could say if you want, you know, partial fulfillment. And okay, maybe there's some aspects that are being fulfilled, but it has not yet been fulfilled. Maybe it's in the process of being fulfilled, right? Sky monster comes and he, Blows a couple things up, but it's not done until it's done. Okay, does that principle make sense? Silly illustration? Okay, I'm trying to be fun here. Okay, all right. I think that's everything I had to say, and that really launches us into Isaiah. Okay, so flip it over to your page if you have uh, the notes there. Page three. Page three. Isaiah. Real quick, how many of you guys watched the videos this week? Anyone? One, two, three, four. okay. Cool, cool. There's a remnant. Um, a remnant remains. Week one, we still have. Okay, I'm, I'm kidding. I think those are, those are helpful. And just letting you guys know, especially when you talk with Isaiah 714, that's a controversial passage that I just can't. We can't spend a ton of time on it, which is why I sent that, um, because if we did, we could spend, you know, a whole class on that. So that gives you a little extra if you want to move that way. Okay, Isaiah. Isaiah, date, authorship, setting, purpose. You guys there? Okay. If you have the, uh, the notes, by the way, I give you the dates in the back. He's, um, this is from what the Old Testament authors really cared about. He gives it 740 B.C., kind of ministering to 681. So sometime in there, Isaiah is prophesying. You have to go to 681 at least because um, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, dies um, in Isaiah 37, and Isaiah writes about it. So you had to be alive until then, okay, and we'll get to that um, probably next week, um, but we have to go to at least 681. One thing I have to say about this, date, author, this is important. It really wasn't until 1700s, 1800s that, and, and this, maybe you guys are like, I don't care, I believe the Bible was written by God and all things are inspired, okay, This might be helpful in interacting maybe with some atheists, stuff like that. Oh, the Bible's been disproved, all this stuff. We have all this, you know, higher criticism. We know better than they knew. Okay. This is helpful. It really wasn't until the 1700s and the late 1800s that a bunch of Germans started doubting who wrote the Bible. Okay. All throughout, we have overwhelming manuscript evidence that Isaiah, the guy living at this time, the guy who identifies himself in Isaiah 1 as who he is, wrote the book. Okay? And it's not until the 1800s, really, that the Germans come along and say, no, that can't be true. And the, I mean, really, the main reason why is Isaiah 45. And what happens in Isaiah 45 is Isaiah names Cyrus. He says, Cyrus, the Lord, he actually says, the Lord's anointed. I'm going to use Cyrus. Okay, this is a prophecy, like, 200 years in advance. Okay, and it is precise. Like, he says a name. Like, it's not like, hey, the king of Babylon is going to come. No, like, he says, Cyrus. And then 200 years later, guess what happens? Cyrus shows up. And so what people do, um, what people do is it's like, well, obviously that can't be true. Okay? Now, we're Christians, and we go, oh, hey, no, I I can believe that. I can get on board with that. I mean, God knew. And he told Isaiah to write that, that Cyrus is going to come. And my point is, is that really it's not until the late 1800s, early um, 1900s, that Germans come along and they say, no, that can't be the case. And so what you have if you, is you have first Isaiah, and then after Isaiah 40, you have a second Isaiah who's writing hundreds of years later, and then there's a third Isaiah, all these guys identifying as Isaiah. Not true. Okay, it's not true. Okay, so I just, I just had to say that because maybe that's something you guys will interact with later on. Um, Just know, it really goes, I think it goes down to Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45 because of a precise prophecy that Cyrus is going to come. Okay, some of this um, setting, okay, some of this purpose, what's he writing? You could kind of talk about Isaiah as like a courtroom book, okay? Uh, Israel is on trial. Israel is on trial with God because of their disobedience, okay? Judgment is coming because of their sin. Um, Isaiah, his name, actually means Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. And really, so this is, kind of, this is not inspired, but it's kind of cool. Isaiah's 66 chapters. The first 39 books are one unit, and then the last 27 books are one unit. There's 39 books in the Old Testament. There's 27 books in the New Testament. You're like, oh, that's amazing. Like, well, chapters weren't added until later. But that's a cool way to remember it, right? Um, Isaiah 1 to 39 really deals with this theme of um, judgment and salvation And then the second half um, really deals with, you know, kind of comfort and how that's going to happen. Okay. So let's get into it. Isaiah 1. Turn there. If you don't have your Bibles, open your Bibles. Isaiah chapter 1. We're going to try and, like I said, if I can get to Isaiah 11, I'll be really happy, but I don't think it's going to happen. Isaiah chapter 1. Again, this, this theme we have, you have under letter A, you guys with me there? Book of promise. You could rather, I, I took all these headings just from my class, okay? So if they're great, I don't get any credit. If they're bad, I still don't get any credit. Don't blame me, okay? Um, Book of promise, or if you want to talk about this, judgment and hope, judgment and salvation, back and forth, judgment, salvation. Isaiah 1, beginning in verse 1, and you're like, are we going to read all of Isaiah? No, we are not, okay? The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw... Concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Okay? Now it's actually, and I really want to get there, Isaiah 6 is when he actually describes the vision that he saw. The vision of Isaiah, we actually don't see that until Isaiah 6. He actually has some commentary before we get to the content of his vision. Okay? But look at this, verse 2, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. Now maybe you're like, I don't even know what he's talking about. And this is why I have notes. Look at this. Look at this. What's he talking about? Hear, O heavens, and give your O earth. I don't know what's going on there. He's going back to Deuteronomy. He's going back to the covenants, okay? In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, before the second generation goes into the land, look at what Moses says. Well, God says through Moses, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. He's saying they are the witnesses in the covenant ceremony of blessing for obedience or curses for disobedience. Those are the witnesses. And guess who the witnesses are that Isaiah is calling to the witness stand right at the very beginning? Heaven and earth. So automatically the setting, if we don't understand this, if we miss this, we're going, what's going on in Isaiah? He's going back to Deuteronomy and saying Israel is, is uh, was it not on the jury, but they're in the courtroom. What's the word I'm looking for? They're, they're on trial. They're on trial. There we go. I was looking for some law enforcement people to help me out here. Um, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Well, in Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah is saying, Hear, O heavens, give your O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Isaiah is saying, Israel is dumber than a donkey. They don't understand. They don't understand. You come down, verse 4, ah, sinful nation, laden with iniquity. They are utterly estranged. They do not know. Come down to um, verse 8. There's already a prophecy here that the the daughter of Zion, he's talking about the city, Jerusalem, is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. That Israel and Judah is going to be judged, but the city is going to be spared. Jerusalem is going to be spared, okay? Verse 9, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Get this, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Who's he talking to? Israel, right? Sodom and Gomorrah are toast. Literally, right? They've been toast for a long time. Who is he comparing, and and, I mean, you guys are familiar with the story, the historical narrative. Sodom and Gomorrah, pretty bad, right? Yeah, super sinful. Well, how sinful is Israel? Just as bad. He's comparing them to Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 11, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight. Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who is required of you? This trampling of my courts. Bring no more vain offering. Incense is an abomination to me new moon and sabbaths and the calling of convocations i cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates so everything that israel is doing to please god is it actually pleasing god no it's an abomination he hates it what do they need to do verse 16 wash yourselves make yourselves clean remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. So he's saying, you guys need to repent of your sins. You can't just do X, Y, and Z and think it's earning the Lord's favor. I gotta go to the next slide because I'm not sure what I have. Okay, yeah, Isaiah two. Um, Such so as you have in Isaiah one. Okay, more judgment. Okay, judgment is coming. Just write this maybe in the margin somewhere. Isaiah one, judgment. Isaiah one. Judgment is coming. Okay, Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2. There is hope. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, Isaiah 2 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days. So here is a prophecy. He's condemned them because of the covenant. Here is a prophecy. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations, not just Israel, all the nations, all the people shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he, talking about God himself, will dwell on this mountain. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And so Isaiah 2 offers hope. Isaiah 2 offers hope. So if Isaiah 1 is judgment, Isaiah 2 is hope. This shall come to pass. In the latter days, I can't get into everything on this, but if you remember from last week, we talked about Genesis 49 and Numbers 24, talking about um, the ruler or scepter that shall rise from the line of Judah. Okay, At the beginning of those prophecies, if you want to write it down, um, yeah, Numbers 24, 14, Genesis 49, 1, it mentions this shall come to pass in the latter days. In the last days, these things are going to happen. What phrase does Isaiah use in Isaiah 2-2? In the latter days. So they're both pointing forward to a coming event. In the latter days, this is going to happen. Judgment is coming soon. Judgment is coming now because of your sin. But after the judgment comes what? Hope. After the judgment, God will restore his people. Okay, so that's Isaiah 1, judgment. Isaiah 2, hope. Isaiah 3, Isaiah 3, I can't get into all this, but he goes back again to judgment. Judgment is coming. Oh, actually, I just realized this is really important. This is the slide. I'm so sorry. Isaiah 2, just, oh, yeah, okay, I even have it highlighted. Okay, Isaiah 2, he goes back to talking about the sin of Israel. This is really significant for Isaiah 6, by the way, which is why I'm doing this, because Isaiah 6 is key. The prophet is condemning Israel, verse 7, because their land is filled, okay, okay? Now, if you remember, very beginning, Genesis 1, what does he say? To mankind, made in uh, God's image, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, okay? As image bearers, as bearers of God's image, they are to fill the earth. Isaiah 2, what's the land, it's the same word for earth, what's it filled with? Silver, gold, there's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Verse 8, their land is filled with idols. It's not filled with the glory of God, it's filled with idolatry. It's filled with sinfulness. They've sinned, right? The land is not filled with the glory of God. It's filled with idols. Okay, I forgot about that. So judgment, hope, chapter 3, same thing. Judgment. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah. Support and supply. He's going to get rid of everything that is letting, allowing them to continue. He's going to judge them. Verse 9. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. They've brought this evil on themselves. You have the sinfulness of the daughters of Zion. This is Isaiah 3, verse 16. Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with the scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts in that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, and the crescents. So he's saying, all this sinfulness is going to, because of it, judgment's coming. Judgment is coming. So Isaiah 1, judgment. Isaiah 2, hope. Isaiah 3, judgment. What do you think chapter 4 is? Hope, right? It's not, I try to not do trick questions like Mark where you have no idea what to say, right? Isaiah 4, listen to this. This is amazing. Isaiah 4, verse 2. In that day, the branch, just underline that, highlight it, do something with it. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. What's the problem with Israel right now? They're not holy. He's saying it shall come to pass at some point they will be holy. Because of the branch. Everyone who's been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord, this is verse 4, Isaiah 4, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, the ones he just condemned, and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment, by a spirit of burning. Now just listen to Isaiah 4, verse 5, and tell me what this reminds you of. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion, and over her assemblies, a cloud by day, and smoke, and the shining of a fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. What does that remind you of? Exodus, right? When God is leading his people out, what is it? The same thing. The same thing, a cloud by day, flaming fire by night. So what's Isaiah already prophesying? That there's going to be a second Exodus. There's going to be a new Exodus that the Lord himself is going to lead, as we're going to see later on. And that when he leads that, God's people, Israel, will be holy because God is going to dwell amongst them on his mountain and all the nations are going to come and flow. You guys see how all these prophecies are kind of coming together? You guys see that? Okay, so Isaiah 4, hope. Okay, Isaiah 5. We are going to be able to get to Isaiah 6, which is important. But we've got to get to Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5. So judgment, hope, judgment, hope. Isaiah 5, what? Judgment. Judgment is coming. Isaiah 5, verse 1, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. One of, one of my professors said, he's like, what is this, like silly songs with Isaiah? Like, like what is going on? Like, they're being judged, like, like they're in the courtroom, and then Isaiah bursts in, and he's like, I got a song to sing. It's like, what? What is going on? Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. I think I missed a slide here. This is Isaiah 4. Okay, we'll get to this. Okay. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard. Okay, you have a, no, you have a line there in your notes, the vine and fig motif. Okay, you're going to see this throughout the prophets. This is vitally important. Just circle back. Okay, when I'm reading the prophets, if I see vine, vineyard, and fig tree, it's important. Okay, it's important. You're going to see this, and this is, so for example, this is Jeremiah 2.21. Yet I planted you, what is he talking about? A choice vine. Holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? That's Jeremiah two twenty one. You go to Hosea 10.1. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. He goes on. So Israel is the vine. You come to uh, Psalm eighty. Look at what he even says here. You brought a vine out of Egypt. Like he's talking about the Exodus, and he just calls Israel the vine. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, took deep root and filled the land. So this is vine and fig tree we'll talk about a little later. But going back to Isaiah 5, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Sick, disgusting That's what it means, wild grapes. It's not just like they're crazy grapes. They're horrible grapes. They're stench. And now, here's Isaiah. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Here's what he's saying to Israel. What do you think? What do you think about this? What's going to happen? By the way, Jesus does the exact same thing in Matthew 21, the parable of the tenants, right? When he leases out the vineyard, Jesus is drawing on Isaiah 5. Verse 4, what more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? Look at all the good things I did. I dug it, cleared it of stones, all this goodness I've done for my vineyard. When I looked for it to yield wild grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Verse 5, and now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. Catch this, the second half of verse 6. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. And at this point, Israel's going, wait, what? Nobody can do that. Because God's saying what he's going to do to the vineyard. In verse 7, who's the vineyard? For the vineyard of Israel of hosts is the house of Israel. I am going to judge you because of your sin. This is going to happen. And then you flip over. Isaiah 5, verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house. Verse 11, woe. Verse 18, woe. Verse 20, woe. 21, woe. 22, woe. Woe, woe, woe. Judgment. Judgment is coming. So Isaiah 5, what's it about? Judgment. Okay, I'm skipping a little stuff. Maybe we'll come back. Isaiah 6, because we've got to get to this. Isaiah 6. So if we've gone judgment, hope, judgment, hope, judgment, what do you think Isaiah 6 is? Hope. Okay, now we go back to Isaiah 1. Here's the vision that he saw. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. What was it? Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Underline that. Bolt. Do everything you can to that is so important. <laughs> high and lifted up, especially when we come to the second half of Isaiah. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with um excuse me each had six wings with two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet with two he flew and one called to another and said holy 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 is the lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory now stop and think what is isaiah seeing here what's the earth yes but you're jumping ahead <laughs> what it no offense don no offense what is i'm sorry i need to skip ahead in the slides here Getting too excited. Oh, it stopped working. Great. Okay, no, there it is. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah 2 references Israel. It's full of what? Idols. So when he says the earth is full of his glory, is he talking about the present? No. Isaiah is seeing the future. Isaiah is seeing the future of what is to come. And this vision of God in his glory, in his splendor, as Isaiah, the second half, is going to explain, as John, the apostle, is going to explain in his gospel, he saw the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ, and that changed his ministry. He saw the Messiah in all of his glory, high and lifted up, and he saw the moment in redemptive history when the whole earth was filled with his glory. And that changes everything everything about his ministry and he sees him I know we're running out of time but he sees him verse 5 woe is me just like Israel in chapter 5 when God proclaims judgment on them woe here Isaiah says woe is me I'm unholy too you could say Isaiah is a microcosm of Israel he represents Israel he says, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that, had taken, uh, that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. You see the necessity of atonement for sin to dwell in the presence of God. Verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. This is Isaiah. And here's what the Lord commissions him to do. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Isaiah 6, verse 10, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with the hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste. Isaiah, you're going to preach judgment until judgment comes. You're going to preach judgment until the judgment comes. Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses with people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. Underline, highlight, do whatever you can in this last phrase, the holy seed is its stump. Because he gives this picture of this forest, this forest of Israel, and it's all going to be hacked down. Judgment is coming. Isaiah, you're going to preach judgment until judgment comes. But guess what? The holy seed is in its stump. You're going to see this in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah 11, which we didn't get to. We'll pick back up on it. But Isaiah 4 has already referenced this. In that day, the branch of the Lord, the branch is coming. There's hope. Isaiah 6, the holy seed Is in the stump. So judgment is coming, but there's hope. There is hope. The holy seed, the one who is holy, the one who actually succeeds everywhere where Israel failed, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, which we're going to look at his glories so much more. Yes. Which goes back to Genesis 3. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it goes back. Yeah, ultimately it goes back to Genesis 3.15. Yeah. We're going to unpack more of that. Um, I'm already five minutes over time. Are there any questions There is like, I had no idea what you were saying. You need to clarify something. Is this exciting to anyone else? Okay. Just one thing. Again, I'm not going to be able to get into everything in the prophets. But I hope that as you're reading this, it gives you something to hang your hat on. You go, okay, I know what's going on in Isaiah. And I know what I need to read. How this is revealing God's glory. Here's his plan. And again, this might not be the book where you go, oh, wow, I can apply that directly to my heart. I think Isaiah 1 you really can, right? When he talks about your sinfulness and you're just coming to worship service and you're living like a wreck the rest of the week, but on Sunday, God says, I do not hear your prayers, right? So you can apply that, but ultimately, as I made the point last week, this is a book about God, and as we learn more about him, we're transformed into his likeness, okay? So let's behold God's glories together in Isaiah We made it to chapter six. Okay, that's fine. We'll catch up. Let me pray. God, thank you so much. Thank you for your word. I pray that it would transform us, that we would grow more in our love for you, that we would love you as a result, that you are a God who punishes sin, but above all, Lord, you are a gracious God who forgives, that you do not leave us without hope in this world as we look to your son. Lord, thank you for this morning. Bless us in your name. Amen. If you have questions, come talk to me. So we're already a week behind in the syllabus, that's fine. You can keep going if you want. If not, that's okay.